This is the Scott Thompson Show podcast. The Ontario Society of Professional Engineers is reporting that last year the province of Ontario wasted a total of 7.6 terawatts of clean energy. That amounts to powering more than 760,000 homes for a year at a cost of $1 billion. Uh, to talk more about all of this, Parker Galland is with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. He is with us now. Hello, Parker. How are you today? I'm good, Scott. And you? Good. Thanks for taking the time to join us. We greatly uh, appreciate this. So decode this for us. What does this mean? Uh, well, it means basically that, uh, you know, there's a lot of surplus power that we're producing in Ontario or not producing, which is the curtailed part of the whole thing. Um, I, I, I was, it's coincidental, but I was working, I was looking at the main numbers um, when the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers came out with their report, and May is looking like it's really been a bad, bad month as well in terms of surplus production and uh, wasted energy, and we're paying for all that because, you know, uh, these are contracts that have been set. And, uh, you know, the generators are guaranteed they're going to get the price that is in the contract. So what makes a bad month? You said we had a bad month. What, what constitutes that? Well, a bad, we usually get lots of bad months in, this, in the spring and the fall because that's when our demand for electricity is the lowest, right? Right. So if our demand is the lowest, then all the uh, energy that's coming, as an example, from wind and solar quite often is coming at the wrong time. It's coming in the middle of the night when we don't have the furnace running or we don't have the air conditioning on in the spring and the fall. That means it's surplus. So what what we're obligated to do under the contracts that have been signed is pay those generators for basically not producing any uh, wind-generated power uh, during the evening or during the, you know, the, the nighttime. And the same thing with solar during the day. So that, and on top of that, we spill water quite often. That we're wasting water. We're steaming off nuclear. In other words, we're not running either the water or the steam through the turbines. Therefore, we're just wasting it. But OPG gets paid for spilling water, and Bruce Nuclear and Darlington get paid for steaming off. So, you know, that's that's what we're what we're doing is we're wasting a lot. I mean, I just, I looked at, as I said, I was looking at May, and May alone, uh, we basically either exported our surplus or an increased amount of our surplus energy that we didn't need, or we were curtailing wind. And that amounted to uh, so much energy that it cost the the ratepayers about $160 million for just one month. Hmm. And it was all wasted, basically. And it could have supplied a million three hundred thousand households with power for that month. And that's just, as I say, one month. Uh, and whereas the, uh, the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers were looking at the whole year, 2016. Talk about their report, and you know the headline says one billion dollars worth of energy wasted last year. Um, what significance does this study have? Well, I think it should hopefully have a lot of significance if if the politicians pay attention to it. But, you know, the OESP has has come out with reports in the past saying that, you know, it was basically nuclear and gas that replaced coal. It was not wind and solar. 
And, you know, that was ignored by the politicians as they, you know, signed up more and more contracts for more wind and more solar at, you know, prices that are ridiculous as far as I'm concerned. And the Auditor General has also confirmed that. So basically, uh, we're, we're paying for power that we're not using or we're, in fact, just loading off, giving to or selling at a very low price to other states or provinces. Yeah. I mean, you know, it cost us $126 for every megawatt we generated during May, okay? We sold the surplus, that, uh, what I was talking about, selling it to New York and Michigan and Quebec. We sold it for $3.17. Yeah. <laughs> How be- how beneficial is Wynn's energy mistake to these other provinces, or to Quebec or New York State? I mean, they seem like the ones that are really gaining in all of this. They are. I mean, because we're you know we're, we're exporting that, we're offering it to them at very cheap prices, and they're picking it up, so they can keep their rates low and attract our industry. You know, there's been rumors, and and I've seen uh, seen things that uh, people have have uh, showed me and told me about uh, where, you know, we, their industries are getting solicited by people from outside the province. So, you know, the, you know, the fact of the matter is, if you're an energy-intensive, in an energy-intensive business, uh, you're spending a lot of money on, on you know, generate, on buying your electricity. And if that's a big component in your costs, then, you know, why can't I move my greenhouse to Ohio or why can't I move my refining operation to Quebec, which have happened. Those things happen. And, uh, you know, the people people that are doing that don't, you know, put out a press release saying, you know, we're moving our green, we're going to expand our greenhouse operation, but we're going to, you know, do it in Ohio because of the price of electricity here. You don't hear that. I mean, they don't. You know, people don't put out press releases when they shut things down. Yeah. Uh, why are we? And I understand a while ago there was an announcement in regard to buying uh, hydro from Quebec because they have such an abundance of it, um, which makes you ask the question: Why are they taking ours? Um, but why are? Why do we have? Why do we not have more agreements like that with the province of Quebec, who seems to have an abundance of it all? Well, Quebec only has an abundance during the summertime. Yeah. During the wintertime, they actually uh, quite often uh, need all the energy they're generating over there. Right. And the reason why is because uh, many, uh, many more homes in, in Quebec are heated with electricity than in Ontario. In Ontario, mm-hmm. we have a high, a high demand time is really during the summer when all the air conditioners are on. And in Quebec, the high demand time is in the winter when everybody's trying to heat their homes. So, you know, we don't, you know, the compatibility of the two provinces uh, is is not great. We, you know, we we have signed an agreement with Quebec saying, okay, we'll, you know, we'll uh, agree that if we need some power in uh, the summer, we'll take some of it. And we said we will supply some power in the winter time if you need it. But uh, it's a very small portion, and it, it, you know, very seldom gets activated. The other thing is, of course, you have to have um, uh, transmission lines between the provinces to make sure you can move the electricity in. Transmission lines cost a lot of money to build, and if they're not being used very much, it's kind of Hmm. wasting money, if you will. Why are we continuing to build if, you know, we've got such an issue with curtailment, which is dumping the stuff we don't need for a loss? 
Uh, I don't know. I mean, there seems to be this bent that uh, we have to buy, you know, we have to contract for more and more wind and solar, um, even though we don't need it. Now, there are things coming up, like uh, Darlington is going to be refurbished, which means that some of the nuclear plants will not be in operation. And that should eat up a little bit of our surplus. But really, you know, we we most of the time the nuclear operations that we have in the province could supply most of our power, and then we could look to the gas plants and, you know, the hydro and um, nuclear, as I said, together provide power most of the time that, that is more than enough for for all of us here in Ontario. So we have a lot of gas plants that basically are doing nothing. You know, they've been doing nothing since the start of the year. They've been idling. and We pay them. We pay those gas plant operations for just idling, for doing nothing. So, you know, we've got, uh, you know, the availability of, if you will, power that we can control, whereas with wind and solar, you know, if the wind's blowing, then we get the power. If it's not blowing, we're not going to get anything, so we have to find it somewhere else. Um, is there much that can be done if another government is installed after the next election, or are we just wrapped up? You know, it reminds me of of the debt retirement charge of years by, and now we're going to be paying for WIND's Green Energy Act for the next 30 years. Is there anything that the next government can do, or are we just stuck with this now? Well, we're stuck with a lot of it, but I think there are things that can be done. Um, and I think the report from the OS, that PE, the Ontario Society of Engineers, Professional Engineers, has suggested some alternatives, as there has been in the past. Like, we could use the surplus to feed some other industries at a cheap rate that might attract jobs, right? We could perhaps reduce the cost of electricity for households uh, on a time-of-use basis so that we would consume more of that surplus. But none of these things have been, you know, taken on. By consuming more, we probably would drive up that wholesale electricity price, the price that the market trades our surplus at, and that would generate more revenue. More revenue coming into the sector would help to keep the rates lower. You know, so we're kind of caught on this uh, this uh, merry-go-round, and they won't admit that, you know, they won't back away from their, their uh, you know, push to, you know, add more and more uh, renewable energy in the form of wind and solar. Yet that's happening in other parts of the world. You know, they are backing away from it now in Europe and many uh, countries. So is this study from the Ontario Society of Professional Engineers, is it going to resonate with Ontarians when they realize $1 billion of energy is basically put over top of the dam? One would hope so. Um, but, uh, you know, with the, with the kickback that we're getting now, the 25%, people may say, oh, well, I've got a little bit more money left every month than I had before. And they may forget about it. But I'm hoping it resonates because... We need, and I think the society has said this, is that we need more professional management. The management that's being, if you will, um, looked at and, and um, you know, the management that's running the, the electricity sector are basically the politicians we elect. They come in with this mm. you know, brilliant idea that they've been sold, and they're pushing through this agenda that has no uh, cost-benefit analysis behind it. You know, we're, we're just 
you know, saying, oh, this sounds like a good idea. You know, sure, we could live off, you know, uh, solar production or wind production, but you can't, you know. David Ake, or sorry, uh, Parker Glenn has been with us, Vice President of Wind Concerns Ontario. The Ontario Society of Professional Engineers reporting last year the province of Ontario wasted a total of 7.6 terabit, uh, terawatts of clean energy. That's about $1 billion worth. Parker, thank you for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Thank you, Scott. All right, take care. All right, uh, and you know, uh, as of July 1st, uh, natural gas going up and, of course, uh, driver's licenses too. Happy Canada Day. But on that note, uh, Global News will be presenting a broadcast tomorrow for Canada's 150th live from Parliament Hill. It'll be simulcast, of course, across the Chorus Radio Network, including right here at 900 CHML uh, from noon until 2. And, of course, one of the hosts, Global Chief Political Correspondent Dave Aiken, is with us now. Hello, David. How are you today? I'm doing great. Yourself? I'm doing very well. So what's the buzz like there now? What is it like? Uh, two things. It's real foggy right now. <laughs> I've just come off Parliament Hill. It's about a block from our office. And, oh, my gosh, the security. There are police officers with submachine guns about every 10 feet. Um, I've never seen so many security on Parliament Hill, uh, so much security on Parliament Hill. And I guess it makes sense. First, first of all, tomorrow we're expecting somewhere upwards of 450,000 people to be on the hill or on the parks around the hills. There's going to be a lot of people here. And, of course, you know, this is taking place in an environment. We've seen situations in Europe where the bad guys of the world will try and take advantage. So around Parliament Hill, there's this day, there's all sorts of police. You can't drive right now within about three blocks of the hill. And tomorrow, that perimeter where there will be no tra- vehicle traffic, it will extend to about six blocks People coming onto Parliament Hill itself are going through what is essentially airport security screening, and there's a whole bunch of things you can't bring. So it's going to be a very secure environment. Uh, there's no question about it. And that's because there's a lot of notables. The Prime Minister, of course, will be speaking at this ceremony, the Governor General. We've got Charles and Camilla, the uh, Prince of Wales and Duchess of Cornwall. They're here representing Queen Elizabeth, who at 91 years old is not doing that much travel overseas mm. uh, these days. So we got Charles and Camilla. And here's the weirdest guest, or not the weirdest, but sort of the curveball guest, if you ask me. Bono and the Edge from U2 are, you are getting, going to be here. Are you getting much? Here. Are you going to get? Are you getting much feedback on this? Because we've had some people saying, "Where's, oh, the, gosh, where's yeah. the Canadian connection there?" And and I mean, you know, I just refer to everybody that they're on tour with the Joshua Tree, so they're available. Uh, but what they're what is what yeah. is the feedback around that? It, well, it, when it was announced, and I guess what, about a week ago or so, uh, you know, everyone's going, what? They're not Canadian. It's like, you know, we're a big enough country. If we want to invite a couple of Irish rockers to our party, uh, you know, why not? And of course, Bono has a long sort of political connection to Canada. He's a big admirer of Canada. He, uh, I think he first started meeting prime ministers going back to Paul Martin. He met with Stephen Harper, met with Martin. Now he's going to meet Trudeau because he's big on the anti-poverty thing and he, he likes what Canada has been doing, thinks Canada could do more. So he's been a frequent visitor here. We've got a lot of Irish Canadians, of course. I mean, so why not uh, mm. add one that's still Irish? And here's a weird twist. On Monday, we're going to Dublin, Ireland. The prime minister, and I'll be in the back of his plane, he's going to Ireland as part of a week-long European visit. He's doing, this is the prime minister Trudeau, he's doing Ireland, Scotland, and then he's going to the G20 in Hamburg, Germany. So... Uh, why not have an Irishman here, I guess? You know, it doesn't bother me one bit. I think it'll be kind of fun. Give us a little bit of insight, and this is a little off topic. What's it like riding in that plane with the Prime Minister? It's just like riding in any other airplane. We don't get a special... We pay our way, which is the first thing. We uh, all, all the media pays uh, our way to travel. 
and it's uh, it's an Airbus. Really, just you like would just ass- Airbus. You would assume yeah. that it would be complimentary somebody from each organization, but obviously not the nope. case. No, it's uh, cost money, and we would insist on that. We do that. Doesn't matter. Traveling with the yeah. Prime Minister, traveling with the Blue Jays, traveling with whatever. Uh, journalism organizations ought to pay their own way. He gets the prime minister has a little cabin up at the front of the plane, so he, he can have a nap and change and have a little privacy. It, it, I've been up in that cabin. It is not uh, the Taj Mahal or anything. It's very modest. And this plane, incidentally, it's a, it's a Royal Canadian Air Force plane. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a plane that is used when it's not ferrying around uh, VIPs. It's the one that say our troops go to Afghanistan in. So that's it doubles as a troop transport. As I say, it's very it's just. Regular old economy seating for everybody in the back. Um, and as I say, it's, it's an RCAF plane, so you mm. get served by you know, RCAF lieutenants. It's, uh, lieutenants, pardon me. Uh, All right, so obviously we've seen uh, on your newscasts about the indigenous demonstrations going on. Mm-hmm. How is that factoring into everything, especially location of the TP, that sort of thing? Well, that is the curveball from the planning point of view that these uh, protesters showed up a couple of days ago unannounced, uh, sort of in the middle of the night. And as I mentioned, it is a highly secure zone. So they're trying to get onto the grounds with teepee poles. And the, and the police said, no, you can't. And there was some pushing, some shoving, and a couple of people got arrested. Since then, there's been negotiations and people have tried to be accommodative. And there's a teepee set up, as I think you probably heard in your newscast, teepee set up on the lawn right by the main stage. And this morning, I was there as well to watch the PM and his wife, Sophie Gregoire Trudeau, go into the teepee. They met with some of these aboriginal protesters. We don't know what they said. Trudeau came out and, and went about his day, didn't say much about it. But their point is this, and okay, fine, if, if we want to take this, this position. They say they can't celebrate the country's 150th anniversary because it's their country and their country is way older than 150 years. It's thousands of years old. And when we don't have boil water advisories on reserves, when aboriginal kids aren't going aren't having trouble, that's when it'll be time to celebrate something, but not until then. So they're making their point, fair enough, uh, and they're going to be right smack in the middle of this big, huge celebration. So they will, in fact, let the TP and the demonstration stay there right next to the stage throughout the uh, entire celebrations? It, it looks it. I mean, we haven't heard that they're going to be removed at this point in time, and they're not, as they say themselves, they're not there to cause trouble. They're there to just sort of make the point with their presence. And so uh, that's where it's going to be. And I'm certain it's going to be a, a point of curiosity, perhaps, for a lot of people. As soon as the PM left and, uh, and the security perimeter around the PM left, uh, the Hill's got a lot of visitors right now. And there was people who you know, wanted to go over and talk. And the, the protesters, such as they were, were happy to tell them why they were there. So mm-hmm. this is Canada. Everybody seems to be getting along peacefully, being angry at each other. You, know what I mean? <laughs> uh, you talked about security and the heightened security. It's very visible there. Any news, any chat, any, any chatter of a threat? Is this all precaution still at this point? There is, uh, all the officials say there is no credible or specific unique threat uh, that they are aware of. This is essentially just good practice from a security point of view. It may seem overkill right now. But, of course, a lot of the point of a, of a highly visible secure perimeter is so any bad guys know it's a highly secure visible perimeter. And so at this point, uh, there may be some inconveniences. If by any chance uh, you're, you're planning to come up tomorrow for this thing, you know, get here early, leave early, and make sure you hit the websites to find out what you can and cannot bring onto Parliament Hill it's the weather forecast tomorrow is very dicey. There's a good chance of thunderstorms rolling through. It's probably going to be a wet at some point. Uh, but 
Take all precautions by looking at the website if you are planning to travel. And if you're not, of course, as you mentioned, hey, it's going to be right here on CHML across the Chorus Radio Network, across the Global TV Network. Uh, we'll have the, uh, the main ceremony at midday uh, live from 11 till 2. All right, Dave Aiken has been with us, Chief Political Correspondent, Global News in Ottawa for the Big Parte. And, of course, you can hear it all live uh, from noon until 2 and watch on global television as well. David, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Great, thanks. Cheers. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. How are we perceived on the world stage? And what do Canadians think of their own country? There's a uh, great article you can read on our website, in the global, uh, on the Global News website. Uh, the best of Canada and, and, and the worst of Canada and what we all think of it. We hear so much of what other people think of our country. What do Canadians think of our country? Uh, let's bring in Matthew Hayday. He's Associate Professor, University of Guelph in Ottawa for this Canada Day weekend and is with us now. Hello, Matthew. How are you today? Very good, thanks. How are you? I'm doing very well. So you're in Ottawa for the weekend, I understand. Uh, I'm actually in Ottawa for most of the summer, but for the weekend as well, yeah. So what's the, what's the vibe like down there? What's it been like and just your observations as, you, as everybody gets ready for Canada Day? Well, I, I headed out this morning to buy a, a rain jacket because it's look, <laughs> looking like I might need an arc on Parliament Hill. Yeah. Uh, it's, it's a mixed vibe, I think. There, there's certainly the usual excitement. Ottawa celebrates Canada Day like no other city, I think. That's uh, fair to say. You don't get the kind of crowds and exuberance. But there's also been a lot of discussion about, you know, what, what are we celebrating and should we celebrate and how should we celebrate uh, this year? And I think that that's actually a really healthy conversation that's happening this year. Are you referring to the Indigenous, uh, I don't want to say protest or demonstration, but certainly I, I, information a gathering that's going on there around the teepee? I, I, not just around the teepee. I mean, this is a conversation that's been going on for months now. I mean, I don't know how many Canadians paid attention before the teepee went up, but you've been having Indigenous elders and Indigenous activists and community leaders saying for months now um, that we need to have a more serious conversation about the, the real problems, not only in Canada's past, but in, in its present. Um, and that that needs to happen, you know, some would say instead of, others would say alongside the celebrations. Um, th- that's a very valid point. I- is it reason to not celebrate? Uh, can we not use the occasion to uh, at least acknowledge this, this issue and, and at least draw more attention to it? I, I've, I mean, my, my personal take on it has tended to be that you, you can do both. That mm-hmm. um, there, are, if you know, the word celebrate may not always be the best word. It could be mark or acknowledge. Um, I think that there's a lot to be said for having these events so that there's an opportunity for engagement and to have something to to be contesting. And there's a really rich history uh, in Canada of contesting Canada Day or Dominion Day, if you go back far mm. enough. Of groups that said it's like, well, look, here's this event. It's got this celebratory story built up around it, but we've got some problems that we need to draw our uh, attention to. And that goes back throughout Canada's history of celebrating on this day. Getting back to the Indigenous issue, uh, obviously this seems to be coming, um, I don't know if it's coming to a head, but it, it, it's certainly been talked about more now than it has in the past. Uh, that being that being said, over the last 150 years, uh, in some way, good or bad, we have tried to fix this issue. We have tried to, 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 to mend this relationship are we doing the same thing that, that we have in the past and expecting a different result, or do we need to have a different discussion? Uh, I mean, I, I think, and I certainly wouldn't want to be the person to speak uh, for, for Indigenous peoples, I think that it's only very recently that we've actually 
um, seen significant movement in terms of trying to change things. I mean, if you look at the first century uh, of Canada's history, there was not <laughs> attempts to change things in a positive way. Um, I mean, if, if you look at what happened on Parliament Hill on July 1st, 1965, it's actually kind of stunning. The, the way that uh, First Nations were portrayed was to have a Scottish pipe band from a residential school perform and basically give Canadians this idea that, you know, assimilation is the way to go. Um, that you know, that's that's living memory for a lot of. Uh, for a lot but of but let's but let's remember here, uh, Matthew, that even those people back then thought they were doing the right thing. They weren't trying to, you know, put us in a scenario where we are now. They thought they were doing the right thing. That's, I guess, the I, point I was trying to make. I, I, I think I think some people might have thought they were doing the right thing, and certainly the further back you go, you have more and more people who did think they were doing the right sure. thing. I think that there's, uh, and I, I and I will not, uh, I don't, I don't want to come across as you know, Mister Heavy-handed Party Pooper either. I think that there have been some uh, some real openings to change and openings to dialogue that have happened recently, uh, but I don't think we're nearly as far along that process as a lot of Canadians would like to believe that we are. Um, you know, when you talk about uh, the problems that today face First Nations, not historical problems like modern day problems like having drinkable water on reserves, um, you know, there's an awfully long way to go. What do Canadians think about Canada? I think Canadians have a very, they've got a very positive narrative about ourselves. And, and in a lot of ways, I think that, you know, if, if you set aside the Indigenous Peace, and I don't think you should, but um, you know, there, you know, you've got a. Uh, I, I think that you look at a country that's managed to survive for 150 years in a fairly stable configuration, that has maintained a democratic tradition, that has avoided um, splintering and separation. I mean, Canadians are often told, like, oh, you have such a young country. 150 years old, like that puts us in the same league as countries like Germany and Italy in terms of their configuration mm. and far or, older than France, which is, you know, on whatever number of republic they're at right now. Um, you know, there, there is a tradition of, of dialogue, of people trying to find ways to change so we can continue to exist as a country. Uh, and that's, that's a very positive thing that I think can and should be celebrated this year. I mean, there's also all this sort of the, the platitudes about Canadians, you know, that we are bilingual, that we are multicultural, that we are polite. Um, and, you know, I don't want to dismiss those, those features either. There's, mm. there's a lot of work we'll take it. into making Canadians accept that. Yeah. Uh, you, you brought up separation, and it's certainly something that we haven't heard a lot about this week anyway. Uh, and not for a long time. Uh, we all certainly do remember when when it was very, very prominent and the country almost did did separate. Is Canada as strong now as it's ever been? I think that Canada is in reasonably good shape right now in terms of, of the national unity front. Um, I think that certainly in terms of the English-French piece, um, if, if nothing else, um, there's a bit of fatigue on that issue that people seem to have decided that they're just not going to fight actively about it right now. And there's a live and let live approach that's taken hold. Um, I, I think that there is a fair amount of goodwill that still exists between Canadians. Uh, and that's the sort of thing that uh, is necessary for an ongoing functioning of the, of the country. So it's in good shape. I, I, I like to think that there's openness to making it better. How do you think Canadians view themselves? What do you think? Are, are we, because everybody knows about the nice thing, everybody knows about yeah. the polite thing. Do we hide behind that? I think we do to a certain extent. There, there's a certain smugness that comes with, with being Canadians. Uh, and, and, it's, and, and, and it comes with risks. And I think certainly 
as we look at what's happened in, in politics in the rest of the English-speaking world recently, there's been even more of that sort of reinforced a sense. Like, Canadians have always defined themselves as not being Americans. I think that's become even stronger uh, over the, pa- the past several months. We look to the South and say, oh, well, thank God, you know, we didn't elect a Donald Trump. Or they look across at the UK and it's like, well, we didn't, you know, we didn't pull a Brexit. Um, and, you know, the, you know, we're the country that gets along with the world. We're the country that accepts refugees. Um, there's a lot of, of you know, of backpack, uh, back patting that, that, that goes on. You know, for the uh, long- and, and some, of it's, some of it's well-earned. You know, for the longest time, Matthew, nobody even knew we were here. Uh, for the longest time, nobody even, especially the United States, uh, knew anything about us. It Now it, it seems the world's pointing us pointing to us as if we're some sort of utopia. Is it the U.S. that's just making us look good now? <laughs> I, I, I think that there there is a lot to be said for the way that the United States is making us look good these days. Uh, but I, I, I mean, even on that point, I'd say there's a lot of people in the United States who are not happy with how their country is right now. And it's it's, it's a risk to sort of cast an entire country by, you know, what I would consider to be its worst, sure. worst example. Uh, we were talking earlier on the show about flags. And uh, in my neighborhood uh, this week, very, very slowly but surely, every so often, a uh, Canadian flag would pop up on someone's uh, front lawn or tree or what have you. Um, and and we were pointing out earlier in the week that if this was the United States and there was a similar celebration down there, the streets would be lined with red, white, and blue. Should we be a little bit more um, outgoing when it comes to promoting our colors, promoting our country? I, I think that we strike sort of a happy balance, that we, we bring them out on, on the national days, but we don't wrap ourselves in them or fetishize them. I mean, I'll admit, I, I have a Canadian flag. I've had it since I was in university. And it's, I don't know if you would remember this, but back in the days when you could write to, to Sheila Copps as the heritage minister and get the free yeah. Canadian flags, I still have one of those right. from back in the day. Uh, and I, I, you know, when I'm living at home in Guelph, I'll trot it out and hang it on, on Canada Day, and then I'll you know, fold it back up nicely and put it away. Uh, and I think that that's not a bad approach to take, that we don't need to be waving the flag um, to have uh, a sense of pride in our country and to, to work to make it a better country. How do you think Canadians are feeling about this birthday? Um, I think that they are that there is a certain amount of engagement. I don't think that they are, are whipped up the way they were for the centennial, certainly. Um, but there, there isn't an expo to go to as well. That, uh, that might Do you think that's a big part of it, too? There's no, uh, there's no place, there's no pavilion. And, you, you know, you brought up expo. And uh, I, I jokingly, I'm, I'm 50. Uh, well, no, I'm 55. So which means <laughs> I was in kindergarten in 1967. I still have my centennial pin which was like a little gold pin, gold-plated pin of the Centennial Maple Leaf put on a government-issued little piece of paper thing, which I still have because my mother doesn't throw anything out. Uh, anything like that this time out? Did, I mean, you know, my kids didn't come home with any little lapel pin or anything. <laughs> Uh, I, I, so when I gave a talk earlier this year, someone gave me a little Canada 125 pin, and I'm on a quest to find a mug with the, with the logo. Because I, I, li- I like the, the logo for Canada 150 and the way it echoes the Centennial one. Mm-hmm. Certainly, there is no shortage of merchandise you can buy with, with the Canada 150 logo. And if you want to see the full extent of stuff, there's a Twitter feed that uh, one of my uh, historian colleagues 
put up and it's uh, at Canada 154, the number four sale. Mm. You can just look at everything that's branded with the logo. Um, so if you want the merch, it's there to be had. What does this do for Canada's brand? Because it is a real good time for us to be turning 150 and having all of this attention on us. I think, I mean, I think any major anniversary like this, um, I mean, National Days too, just the, the annual Canada Day is an opportunity, but the big years are opportunities for governments to put a stamp on where you want to go in the future. Um, there's, there are other historians who say that the Canada we live in today is in many ways the one that was shaped by the type of messages that came out in the centennial year, like this idea of a bilingual, multicultural, tolerant country. That was being pushed very hard back in 67, and it had a huge impact on the generation that followed. There's an opportunity this year, um, and you know, if people and their governments have the will to do it, to say, you know, this might be the point at which we actually put our money where our mouths is and do something about relationships with Indigenous peoples, uh, rather than just mouthing bland platitudes around it. Uh, if in a recent global uh, survey talking about what is best, what is worst in Canada, lots of people uh, talk about our uh, our natural geography and, of course, the landscape of Canada from east to west uh, stands very high. You mentioned diversity. Diversity is is a, a huge point uh, with Canadians that uh, that seems to resonate. And at the end of the day, I think Canadians like being known as good people or polite people. I, I think I think you're absolutely right. I mean, the, there's a reason that we like to tell those, those jokes about you know what what ha- about the Canadian who will apologize to you when you yeah. step on his foot. I mm, mean, there's yeah. there's a reason that sort of thing has resonance. People like like that part of themselves. And I don't think there's anything necessarily wrong with the idea of reinforcing in the national psyche that you should be polite to each other. So. Uh, will there be a uh, a hangover after 150? Will there be, uh, you know, the, the next year, oh, everything was great last year, and now i got nothing to look forward to. Is there a lull after these celebrations? There, there absolutely is a lull after these celebrations. 1968 was a dud year in terms of celebrations across the country. It was like, yep, we've done that, and we're moving on. Um, but what you'll pro- what you'll see, I mean, depending on what province you live in, uh, is that there's a number. I mean, 150 only applies to Confederation and the first four provinces. Right. Um, you know, there there are provincial centennial or sesquicentennials that are still to come up. Um, you know, there's there's always an anniversary of some sort that you can pull into these events. But it's, it's going to be on a smaller scale, that's for sure. You bring up a valid point. I mean, this country certainly wasn't all formed at the same time. Does this resonate more in other provinces, 150, than others? Um, I, I think I, I have certainly seen a lot of people who like to, to call the 150 number into question and say, it's like, really, is this about 150 years? Uh, because either, you know, they're taking the indigenous perspective that it's, you know, 15,000 years, or they're yeah. taking the perspective that yeah. for their province, you know, it's, you know, uh, you know, in Manitoba's case, it would be, sorry, doing the math in my head, 147 years. Right. Or in Newfoundland's case, you're looking at 68 years. Right. Um, that, that matters in different parts of the country. It's, and especially, you know, in the, in the West and in the East, um, the idea that the, the emphasis is all on you know, the central four uh, or the original four doesn't necessarily sit well with everybody. Uh, does this do anything for our economy? Lots have said that, you know, it's just a big waste of money. We should be spending the money on something else. Uh, is this good for the economy? Should the money be spent on something 
you know, that we don't like about Canada? <laughs> I, 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 I tend to fall into the camp of the, the idea that there, there is room for both bread and circuses. Um, if, you know, by sh- throwing an event like this, you bring people together, you get them thinking about issues in different ways that may have dividends. Um, a lot of the government spending is actually on issues like infrastructure projects, and that has a long-term consequence. I mean, and you've seen that before, you know, the, the legacy product from Canada 125 was the Trans-Canada Trail. Um, the government spent a, a lot of money back in 67 on all these, you know, museums and concert halls and so forth that are still standing today. Um, so there there are investments that are being made that are, are not going to simply be over um, with the end of 2017. Does it bring us together? We all talk about how diverse we are. Sometimes it's good. Sometimes it creates friction. Um, but at the end of the day, Canada is certainly known as a country of immigrants. Uh, does this cross all uh, ethnic lines, religious lines, race lines? Does this bring us all together? Well, I mean, g- given what we started talking about at the outset, I mean, it certainly doesn't necessarily cross the indigenous, non-indigenous lines. But mm-hmm. in terms of the immigration factor, um, I think what you will often find is that some of the most fervent partiers for Canada Day are recent immigrants for whom you know, you, no- you notice that with you notice that with people putting up flags and stuff. It's the new people of the neighborhood that are getting into it the most, which is great. Yeah, well, and, and it's, it's not accidental. The governments since the 1950s, they've identified two key groups that they sort of see as the targets, if you want to call it that, for Canada Day messaging. And it's young people on the one hand and new Canadians on the other. They are, try to use these days to, to build a sense of national identity uh, in new Canadians. But also, I mean, people like you're talking about people who chose to come here as well. So for them, Mm. there are clearly a lot of virtues to Canada that they would like to celebrate in their new home. How are young people uh, viewing this? I have a 10 year old and a 15 year old and and I was putting up the flag the other day and I was joking that, you know, I remember, you know, the 1967 pin. You guys will remember this all your life. Does this resonate because it's not a centennial? You know, I think it's pretty big. 150. What the heck? Um, Does it resonate with the younger generation? Uh, I, I don't have kids myself, and so the best I'd be able to say is, you know, on the basis of my, my university students, so that's your, your 18 to 23-year-olds, and I'd say that they're a mixed bag. I mean, they're students of Canadian history, so they're going to have a mix of a critical eye and a certain amount of enthusiasm. Um, I, I don't think that they're, like, wildly energetic. I wasn't having all my students say, oh, yeah, I'm off to Ottawa for the big day. Mm-hmm. Um, but I don't think that they're completely disengaged either. Uh, you talk about uh, history students and what we are teaching. Uh, you talk to Indigenous people, they they want to see uh, corrections made in this. Are, are we doing enough to teach all of, all of Canada's history? I mean, I, I can only speak to what's happening within university classrooms. I mean, certainly when I teach a Canadian history survey, um, you know, my, my students will spend a week in seminar reading about residential schools. They will spend a week in their seminars reading about treaty policy. In my upper year courses, I, te- I teach about uh, Indigenous protest movements. I think that there have been steps taken to try to bring this down into the elementary school and secondary school level, but I, I'm not an expert on what exactly is in the curriculum these days at that level. Certainly in the universities, we teach this to our students, though. Uh, a lot, uh, what seems to be at the core of the Indigenous issue is the Indian Act. Can we move forward without doing something with this? No. I mean, people have been saying that you have to do something with the Indian Act um, for, for decades and, and for good reason. Um, but, you know, people who say, just get rid of the Indian Act, 
you can't do that either. No. There are things in the Indian Act that indigenous groups want to keep. Um, and so it's a question of how do you change, uh, you know, how, how do you change legislation that is deeply, deeply problematic um, alongside all of the other issues? And it's not just the Indian Act. I mean, tr- treaties is a huge piece of this as well. Will we have this discussion after 150? I hope so, um, because it's not going to be resolved this year. This is a Good discussion point. that is going to take a long time. Uh, Matthew Hayday has been with us, Associate Professor, University of Guelph History Department. Matthew, enjoy your time in Ottawa. Thanks very much for taking the time. We appreciate that. Thanks very much. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML. We've heard lots about the tall ships uh, in Hamilton Harbor. What else is going on locally when it comes to 150, Canada 150 events? Uh, Let's bring in Brenda Branch, uh, Cultural Tourism Product Development Officer, City of Hamilton, and with us now. Hello, Brenda. How are you today? I'm very well. How are you? I'm doing very well. Thanks for taking the time to join us. It's going to be a busy weekend for you. Pleasure. Yes, it is a busy weekend. I'm down at Pier 8 now. It is, uh, it's hopping down here. So tell us what you see. Take a look around and just describe what you're seeing. <laughs> I wish I could take a look around. I asked for an office so I could speak with you in quiet, and I don't have much of a view. <laughs> but I, I, I well, I see I the bulletin board. I see the flag. <laughs> exactly. I do see the bay, but I can't see the canal, which is where the ships are coming through probably as we speak. Mm-hmm. Um, so the bridge should be up by now. The ship should be starting to come make their way through the canal. Yeah. And then for the next two hours, they will do their parade of sail around the harbor. Um, something really exciting that we found out yesterday that's happening. We have the Lancaster bomber flying over at 3 o'clock. Wow. And it's going to have the B-25 above it with a videographer on board, oh, shooting cool. the Lancaster down through the parade of sail. It's going to be spectacular. Wow. I'm getting okay. chills just thinking about that. I am, too. That's amazing. Too. You yes. know, with the, with the visual that you'll see in the harbor and the sound of that puppy going overhead, uh, oh. it'll, be, it'll be quite, uh, quite the show. So what happens with the, the, the parade of sail, as you mentioned, starting now? It's going from two to four. The lift bridge, obviously, up if people are trying to get through there uh, <laughs> and is going to be up for a while. Um, 45 minutes, yeah. yeah. So uh, what happens after this? They come into the harbor. Uh, then what happens? Yeah, they're coming in for four. They have to do all of their um, safety um, paperwork and everything. So there's really not anything engaging for the public to do today with the ships. Mm-hmm. Um, they can certainly look at them. They'll all be parked along along the dock, um, pretty much a spectacle in itself. Um, but tomorrow is free deck tours on 10 of the ships. Mm-hmm. Um, the Empire Sandy, which is the largest of them coming out of Toronto, is offering harbor cruises. They are all sold out. So wow. they sold out very quickly. We were we knew they would sell out, but we were very surprised at the speed in which they did so. Mm-hmm. Um, so they have four cruises tomorrow. We have music on the waterfront stage down here at Pier 8. Of course, you have all of the amenities that are already down here. It's like a little destination on its own, really. Um, there's some nautical-themed programming, food trucks, vendors, the list goes on and on. Uh, so where are these ships uh, coming from? Where are they coming from uh, when they're sailing in today? Are they all coming from Toronto? No, they're coming from all over. Um, on the website, um, the Tall Ships website, it tells you where their home port is. Um, so you can find out where they're initially coming from. However, they've been engaged in a 
first of all, a race, um, and now they're all engaged in um, the Canada 150 celebrations right through the Maritimes, Quebec, and with three stops here in uh, Ontario. We were very lucky to be one of those. Um, they're way up north in Bath, and they're in Niagara-on-the-Lake, I believe, tomorrow. So, uh, that okay, so the, the ship's obviously one thing. As you take us through the weekend, give us a couple of the highlights. Oh, geez. Canada Day tomorrow starts at 3 o'clock. Mm-hmm. Lots of family-friendly programming. We have some big Canadian names on the stage. Jelly Black, uh, Steve Strongman, Sarah Sleen. Um, and we also have the fireworks finale set to an, course, an orchestral arrangement performed live mm. by Maestro Boris Brott and the National Academy Orchestra of Canada. That's going to be pretty cool. I think so, too. It will be, no doubt. So no doubt. Uh, uh, when you, what's it like down there now with, with the ships arriving? Are a lot of people down there? There are. They, it, it started earlier this morning than we anticipated it would. Um, now the shuttle buses that have been coming in for the last hour and a half or so are pretty much full. So we've got full buses coming in pretty well every 20 minutes. Um, it's definitely the docks are, are pretty full. We've got media everywhere. It's, um, it's very exciting. Is this a big tourism weekend for Hamilton, or is it just mostly residents that get involved in this, or can we expect the whole pile of people coming up from the U.S. for this? Uh, I don't know so much about the U.S. Um, what I have noticed, especially with the Harbor Cruise tickets, because I can see where those people are buying from, mm-hmm. where, where, they're, where they live, and we have people coming in from Toronto, Kitchener, Niagara, London. Um, we have... A lot of people, I was surprised, coming in from west, uh, western provinces. Mm-hmm. I think we're looking at visiting friends and relatives there, is my guess. Um, there are even some overseas visitors that bought tickets for the Harbor Cruises before, wow. or yeah, before coming in. Um, but we did um, we did market quite extensively throughout the GTA and down to the Windsor Corridor and out to Niagara. So we're thinking we're, we're drawing from that particular catchment area and beyond. All right, if somebody wants to take advantage of what's going on in the Hammer over the course of the weekend, Brenda, where do we go, website, where can we get a a list of all the Canada 150 events? It's an easy one, hamilton.ca slash Canada 150. All right, hamilton.ca slash Canada 150. You will get a whole list of events of what is happening uh, this entire weekend and, of course, uh, kicking off right now uh, with the Parade of Sail, which is coming in uh, through the lift bridge into Hamilton Harbor uh, as we speak. How many ships in total coming in? There are 11. Now, two came to the dock yesterday, so I'm not sure if those two are going back out to join the Parade of Sail. So it'll be 9 to 11 ships in the Parade of Sail. All right, and of course, check the website for more details. Brenda Branch has been with us, uh, Cultural Tourism Product Development Officer, City of Hamilton. Brenda, thanks for the time. Good luck, and uh, have lots of fun this weekend. Remember to enjoy it. I will try. Thank you very much, Scott. All right, you take care. Uh, Another... I guess uh, signature uh, Canadian thing, uh, as you know, lots of people all this week talking about Canadian stories, Canadian inventions, uh, things that are truly Canadian, and uh, and all that sort of thing. Everything relating to uh, Canada 150, uh, and of course, with it being a long weekend, uh, people are known to, uh, you know, perhaps have a cocktail or two. Uh, let's bring in the Caesar.
I believe it was out west that this was invented, but let's find out. Let's bring in Cameron Butt, Mott's Clamato brand marketing manager. Did you know the Caesar is a classic Canadian-made drink? You go try to get one in the United States of America. You see what you end up with. It's... Uh, it's, it's just a different version of a Bloody Mary. Uh, Cameron Butt is with us now uh, from, of course, Mods Clamato. Hello, Cameron. How are you today? I'm well, Scott. Thank you. Good afternoon. Thank you for taking the time to join us. Uh, is a truly Canadian cocktail of the Caesar, where did it come from? Where did it originate? How did it all start? Yeah, absolutely. The uh, Caesar is definitely a uniquely Canadian drink. It was created here in Canada uh, in 1969 in Calgary. And... Um, certainly remains a Canadian cocktail ever since. And anyone who's gone to the States and ordered a Caesar has been served a salad, and I think, in fact, will agree. <laughs> it's either that or it's a Bloody Mary with a couple of other things thrown in it. Absolutely. Uh, the primary difference between a Caesar and a Bloody Mary is that uh, Canadians add clam juice uh, to the mix to give it a more salty type of flavor. And um, a Bloody Mary usually is a little bit more thicker in the consistency with tomato pieces. It's just basically Bloody Mary is tomato juice and, and vodka, is it not? Yeah, a couple other uh, spices in there as well, but uh, that's pretty close, yes. All right, so what what happened in 1969 that created the Caesar? Wasn't it some sort of bar competition? Um, kind of. Uh, it, like I mentioned, it was created in 1969, uh, and it was a celebration in the opening of uh, Marco's Italian Restaurant uh, at the time was inside of the Calgary Inn. Today we know that as the Western Calgary and um, to mark the launch, the resident mixologist and food and beverage manager, Walter Chell, uh, was commissioned to develop a new cocktail. Um, so Walter, with his uh, Italian upbringing, uh, took inspiration from some of the flavors of his favorite dish, uh, spaghetti vongole, and combined a, a mix of different flavors. So uh, sweetness of the tomato juice, the saltiness of the clam nectar, sour of lime, the umami flavor of Worcestershire sauce, spiciness of the, the hot sauce, and, and bitter celery salt. Um, and in the end, it, it came together quite well, and he named it after the Roman Emperor, uh, Caesar. So uh, was did Clamato juice come after the Caesar or before the Caesar? Uh, actually, it was uh, being developed right around the same time. So so both were actually launched in, uh, in 1969, uh, and it kind of worked out because uh, for all the folks who didn't have access to all those ingredients, uh, Mott's Clamato was there to, uh, to, to help them if they wanted to create this recipe at home. And, like, what is it about this drink that everyone makes it differently? Yeah, you know, um, there's a lot of different recipes out there that people, that people go after. Um, but, you know, one of the things we've seen recently is um, the craziness of the garnishes. Yeah. Um, you know, we've seen everything from <laughs> traditional classic cocktail being uh, celery stock and lime wedge to slices of pizza, cheeseburgers, and, and even full chickens to, uh, to garnish it. It's like, you know, the, the, the Caesar has, like, become a meal. It's almost like, a, you know, a breakfast drink. <laughs> Absolutely, you know the uh, the occasion of uh, maybe Sunday not brunch. maybe not breakfast. <laughs> <laughs> well, sometimes on Sunday morning, you know, it's a it's a it's a classic cocktail that people go after when they're out for brunch. I remember it was big on the ski hill, especially Absolutely. in El- especially in Alberta. Man, they loved it out there. Definitely. Uh, so, um, so when this uh, original Caesar was made, uh, he made his own mixer per se. He didn't have the joy of having a, a Mott's Clamato there sitting with him that he could just pour in there. Absolutely correct. Yeah, his base was a, a tomato sauce, and then he added all the other elements like we talked about, like clam nectar and Worcestershire and 
celery sauce, and, and he made it uh, for the first time. How do you explain its success? How did it how did it take off? I mean, people do this all the time. They make wacky drinks all the time. Why did this one take off? Well, I think that it's you know number one, it's it's rooted in in Canadian heritage. Um, so, so people are, are very proud of that fact, and, it, and it's very unique. You're not going to find a Caesar anywhere else. Although other countries have something similar or an equivalent, it's not exactly the same. Um, and in fact, in, in 2009, a parliamentary declaration came out naming Caesar Canada's cocktail. Um, so it's really catapulted it to the full, uh, the forefront of, uh, of Canadian cocktails. You talked about it being a, a truly Canadian drink and, and you go into other places of the world and they may not even know what the heck you're talking about. Um, so is it served anywhere other than here? Yeah, Matsukumaru is um, available globally, um, but different countries have uh, a different take on what they, they use it for. Uh, for example, in the U.S., given the heavy uh, Hispanic population, they actually mix Matsukumaru with beer, and they call it a chilada or a michelada. Right. Uh, so uh, is, this, is this juice always used in a cocktail, or are people drinking it just by itself? Yeah, there, there is some of that. I, I would say that 85% of people who go to the grocery store and pick up a bottle of Matsuklamato are using it to, to make a Caesar. But, uh, you know, we do have some other um, usage occasions where people leverage it for uh, cooking or even just drinking it uh, straight up. Is it getting more, is the Caesar getting more traction in the U.S.? Do they finally know what it is and that it ain't a Bloody Mary? <laughs> I think the jury's still out on that one. Um, but uh, Matsuklamato is doing very well. However, it's just using a different application. Uh, but I, I still think they're very much rooted in their in their Bloody Mary down there. And when you say, usually to a bartender down there, can you make me a Caesar, it usually is reliant on him having a jug of that stuff behind the bar. <laughs> Otherwise, he's lost. Exactly. And chances are you'll end up with a salad instead. Exactly. Uh, do you see a uptick in sales with it being Canada 150? I mean, is this, is this, is this a good branding exercise for you around this, uh, around this uh, event holiday? It is. It is. The, the, the Caesar itself is very, uh, it's very occasion-based. So any long weekend or celebration where it's a social event and people are coming together, uh, we typically do quite well. Um, so, so far this year and in the uh, year of the sesquicentennial, um, we're having a very strong year with Matsukamoto. All right. So what do you say to people who uh, make these drinks differently? Like I said, you can go into a bar or a restaurant in every place. It will taste uh, incredibly different. So if we are making the absolute perfect Caesar, how do we do this? Yeah, I mean, we, we've developed a uh, what we call the one, two, three, four method. And it's uh, the way to make the classic Caesar. And uh, the rule is one ounce of vodka, two dashes of hot sauce, three dashes of salt and pepper and four dashes of Worcestershire sauce. Uh, serve it up in a tall glass rimmed with uh, celery salt, add your Mott's Clamato, and um, you can garnish it with a celery stock, a lime wedge, or actually whatever you like. To me, if you don't have the lime, it just isn't a Caesar. I, I, it's definitely a staple. <laughs> All right. So uh, that being said, do we see um, um, pairings with vodka companies is that in the future i mean i know that there's obviously a, a caesar drink that you can buy pre-made and such but mm-hmm. it, it, since this is such a pairing uh do you is there are there relationships between you and vodka companies or do you keep that separate 
we, you know, we have dev- uh, several partnerships with uh, different manufacturers and suppliers. Um, you know, we are pretty much available ubiquitously in the on-premise or bar and restaurant scene. And, you know, depending on the account and the relationships that the spirits companies have, we have uh, many relationships with, uh, with most of them. Uh, and is it always vodka or do people use uh, Clamato with any other kind of uh, liquor? Yeah, we're, we're starting to see uh, a trend where people are adventuring off into different spirit base. Um, we know that uh, gin is becoming the most popular white spirit. Um, tequila, even whiskey, is something that we're starting to see now. And um, there are many ways to enjoy a Caesar, and you know, using a different spirit is just one way to tap into that. Uh, you talked about uh, cocktails and, and things like gin coming back, which to me remind me back to my parents' days. Mm-hmm. Uh, are we getting back into that sort of cocktail era that, that seemed to be uh, around in the 60s and 70s and such? I think so. I think so. We went through a time frame there where it was just kind of, um, you know, pour and serve. And we're starting to see um, us go back to, you know, the vintage aspect, like you mentioned, where uh, craft and craft cocktails are becoming increasingly more popular, uh, especially with the, the younger uh, millennial demographic. So uh, I, I think we, we are seeing that. All right. If people want to find out more about the perfect recipe, where we go? Website? It's MotsClamato.ca. All right, Cameron Butt has been with us, Mots Clamato Brand Marketing Manager. And, of course, uh, truly Canadian on this uh, 150th anniversary, even though the Caesar was just it's just an infant, born in 1969, uh, a truly Canadian drink. Cameron, thanks for the time and insight. Have a great weekend. You too, Scott. Thank you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on AM 900 CHML.